this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Today, we are talking about a literary Me Too scandal slash cancellation. This story has everything. uh, And more. And more. um, Including vague, unsourced, uh, sort of nebulous suggestions of pedophilia that don't ever actually come to fruition. I don't know. It, it's, there's yes, a lot. That, that seems to be. So So we have a few different characters and um, accusations floating around. And right. maybe if we first lay some of this out. That yeah, might... we should probably talk about first who, who this is. Yes, uh, yes, yes. What is this so, man's name? Okay, this man, um, who we have here with us. No, we do not. <laughs> certainly do not have here he's here. under the bed we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd be we'd be too old no um, <laughs> um sorry this is just oh getting too we're silly making already. we're making everything worse okay it's we not are. Okay. okay also this isn't funny none of this is funny no, it's, we're just laughing it's because... just it's it's we're laughing with discomfort okay yes. so basically There was this novelist who died recently named Philip Roth, who is, you know, one of the like great American novelists. He did not get the Nobel Prize, but, you know, unlike most people who don't get the Nobel Prize in literature, it this has been remarked upon. Most people are not like near misses for a Nobel Prize in literature. Um, Philip Roth, I should say, is um, somebody who's been one of my own favorite novelists. Um, I can't say I've read a Philip Roth novel in the last couple of years, but like as a teenager in my 20s, I read a lot of Philip Roth novels. So that's Philip Roth. He's written most famously, maybe, um, well, it's hard to say which is most famous, but he most notoriously, he's the author of Portnoy's Complaints, which I believe is from the late 60s, late 1960s, which is a very graphic, um, not a graphic novel as in drawings, a very graphic novel as in masturbation with a liver. <laughs> Oh. And other other things that happen. And he's, you know, like, he he makes the bourgeoisie uncomfortable, except not really. He's also, like, a really, really mainstream novelist who has written about, you know, coming from Newark, New Jersey, and his Jewish-American childhood, but always sort of like an autobiographical novelist um, where, you know, sometimes the, the fictional protagonist will be named Philip Roth. God, you know... I would love to read a biography of Philip Roth. Phoebe, is there one that I can read? <laughs> he sounds like a fascinating person. Well, is there one? I think on Kindle you might be, but I don't know if you could get a physical copy of it because da, 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 da. <laughs> he had an official biography done by a man named Blake Bailey, who got the gig, he says, because Philip Roth told him that he had had a chance to take out the actress Ally McGraw, who I guess was one of these sexy actresses of the time. I don't know what time, but whatever. Um, and Bailey had said to him, this was during his job interview, as, as happens in all job interviews, of course, one discusses one's theoretical, what's the word? Not triumph. I'm looking for the word conquests. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just like losing my mind. That was a big part Um, of every job interview I've ever had. Definitely. People are like, who did you have a chance with? I'm like, well, so, you know, there was Keanu Reeves, there was Brad Pitt, and then, you know, the the interviewer, whatever. You know what? I'm I'm actually, I'm going to force a digression here. Who is the most famous person that you almost could have dated? Oh, this is very easy for me. So um, 
when I was in grad school, like the first or second or something year of grad school, I gave a talk in LA, which meant going one of the two times in my life to LA. And I was glanced at by a recurring character from Friends, like an actor who played a recurring character on Friends. I'm not going to say who, because maybe I was misinterpreting. I don't want to like, you know, name names, but I was glanced at in an admiring way by this person. So, so I'll bleep it out, but you've got to tell me who it is. I will, of course. Um, you're bleeping this? Yes, bleeping. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's flattering. I was also like 24, you know, <laughs> it was a different time. Mm. <laughs> and there was my now husband, so I wasn't, this was not like a coulda, woulda. This was like a coulda, right, but not right. woulda. You know, yeah. it was like the availability yeah. was there, but not yeah. the desire. Exactly. So um, how about you? Who is the most famous? I also will not, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you his name and I'll bleep it out. Um, okay. But this was actually very recently. Um, I was in San Diego for Comic-Con. This was after the, the release of the Stan Lee book that I collaborated on with Stan Lee. That came out weird. Um but yeah, so I was I was at Comic-Con, I was at an after party. There were a great number of actors in attendance and uh, one young man, one of the stars of a young adult-based franchise action movie series, which I think, I think that keeps it big enough, was uh, dancing with me rather aggressively and um, certainly, certainly made his interest known. I was very flattered, wow. especially because I think that this young man was uh, young enough to be my son. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, but that's fine. You could, um, you could tell me who this is, but I, there's, there's zero chance I will know. Um, so his is. name is. I will Google, but I, I don't think I will know who he is until yeah. I Google. Pretty cute. Um, so yeah, that's my story. So we, we had it, but I've never had a chance with Ally McGraw. I don't actually know if Ally McGraw is somebody who is still living. I don't quite know if I would know who Ally McGraw was. If I saw a picture, maybe, maybe, is this somebody who had like kind of the big eyebrows before that became a thing? So what he said, what Bailey said was something like, my God, man, why didn't you? Mm-hmm. And Roth said, you're hired. And that's... <laughs> so when I first read that, I thought, okay, Bailey was nailing that interview. Not to use such a, a crude word in this context. Appropriate, but he was. really. Yes. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? Even... If Bailey had been gay, asexual, or uninterested in Ally McGraw for reasons to do with Ally McGraw not being his type or him having never even seen Ally McGraw, whatever, he knew what to say in that moment in the interview. It didn't Mm -hmm. really strike me as a very telling remark about misogyny or objectification or blah, blah, blah. It just seemed kind of like, okay, he knew what to say in the moment and it worked. And judging by reviews of this 900 page biography, including by people who aren't particularly like approaching it from a hypersensitive lens, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily the best biography that could have possibly been written of Philip Roth. It sounds like maybe it misses some sort of like obvious things. And it's more just kind of sympathetic rather than like critical in a sort of more interesting sense. Like, Well, it sounds like the biography that Philip Roth wanted, which I suppose is what you get when you select your own biographer. Exactly, exactly. And um, I guess the 
the sort of structural whatever issue here with this being an official biography is that Bailey has or had whatever access to all of these papers of Philip Roth's that are now otherwise going to be, I guess, inaccessible to anybody, destroyed, whatever. Um, so if you cancel Bailey, you cancel Roth, effectively. And are we canceling Bailey? Well, so here's what's happened. <laughs> I mean, the answer is we sure are, apparently, right? <laughs> yes. Well, the, the short answer with all of these, it was so-and-so canceled things, seems to be yes. And But the reason is complicated. So Bailey is accused So I had said on Twitter, I had called this credibly accused, but then people were taking issue with that and saying that it's not really credible. It's like it's something else because like credible suggests I'm saying he did it and that I know that. And like all I meant was plausibly accused, credibly, plausibly. I'm not a lawyer, as I think everybody probably understands at this point. He has been accused in weight of assaulting adult women, right? That is something that he has been accused of by adult women He's been accused of violently raping adult women, right? Not thousands of them, but but more than one. Three, right? There are three people that he's, yeah. I forget if it's two or three now, but definitely. I think it's one one attempted one. Right, 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 right. Okay. I'm trying to think how we should organize this. So the first allegation to be made was made anonymously to his publisher in, is it 2018? yes. Uh, maybe three three or four years after the event was supposed to have taken place. Um, this allegation is that he violently raped a woman he didn't know when they were both guests at somebody else's house. She's a, was she like publishing executive or an editor? Um, I don't have this in front of me. Someone in publishing, yep. but not somebody who, unlike the others, he had known in the past. Yeah, no relationship with her. So no that's, the first, that's the first allegation to be made. And it was apparently sent to his publisher anonymously or pseudonymously. That's a difficult word to say. In like the wake of the sort of the Me Too early days, um, you know, she decided, though she hadn't reported it at the time, you know, she wanted to say something about it now. Um, this didn't come out at the time, right? Because it was like 2018 when she when she did this, because she, right, she right. wasn't willing to she wasn't willing to respond. Like when um, you know someone attempted to get in touch with her and say, "What is this?" You know, she didn't she didn't respond. Then these other allegations surfaced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's what happened with these other other allegations is something a little complicated. So in the best known at this point of these three, a 22 year old woman, an older at this point than 22 year old woman accused uh, Bailey of having raped her when she was 22. But the significance here is that he had been her middle school teacher. And this is now a Slate article called I Was 12 When We Met. Blake Bailey was my favorite teacher. Years later, he forced himself on me. Why did I seek his approval for so long? It's by Eve Crawford Payton. And the article, it's this personal essay that has her eighth, the illustration is her eighth grade yearbook photo. Um, And the article has a lot of details about what 12 means in terms of how very young 12 is. It has, she remembers which underwear she wore when she was 12, which is, if nothing else, very sharp memory, because goodness knows I don't remember what underwear I had before the underwear I have now. Um, She remembers, I think, that she hadn't had her period yet. It's like all very, it's like graphic 
but to, to demonstrate how young 12 is to somebody who might think 12 is a, an adult, and I don't know who thinks that. But in any case, the reason for this, the reason for her mentioning all of this about being 12 when what she's talking about is plenty horrible, but happened when she was 22, not 12, um, and 22 and about engaged to be married, like she wasn't, she wasn't claiming that she was a particularly immature 22. The reason this is all relevant is sort of twofold. One is that he had said to her, and I guess to other women in similar contexts, that he had wanted them since meeting them. And these, this is sort of a line, right, that somebody might say when hitting on somebody. But if you were their middle school teacher, it's maybe not the best line to go with. Um, Does it actually literally, like in a very literal sense, mean that he wanted these people when they were 12? I would say no, it doesn't mean that. It, It might mean that, but it might not mean that. And to err on the side of the fact that he's lunging at them when they're adults suggests maybe that he was not actually trying to do something to them when they were 12. Well, I mean, this is the thing that's that's kind of crazy making about this story is that, you know, it's it's been framed in the press and in the discourse surrounding it as though this is a story of a child sexual predator. Yes. Well, so that gets to the second part. The second part is the grooming allegation. So he is now alleged to have groomed not just this woman, but a bunch of women, including one who he had, by this woman's own account, consensual sex with when she was 19 and 20. So um, in our newsletter, we use the about this, we use the expression the long game. And then in this slight personal essay, the expression the long game (laughs) comes up. (laughs) So the idea is that he was basically one of those... um, you know, like trying to be friends with the students, trying to connect with them on a possibly too personal level, but not not a child molester, but a, a sort of over a boundaryless middle school teacher. And that not only was he a boundaryless middle school teacher, but this was all a long game to have sex with or assault these women as adults. That's the allegation yeah. is that there was a grooming going on. Now the grooming can I just say something really quick about sure. the, the fact that the, this is being positioned as grooming at all? Um, because there's something like kind of darkly funny about this. The idea is that he supposedly adopted this particular teaching style, which was a, a universal thing. Like he did it with, you know, he, he had the kids keep these journals and a lot of them chose to write very personal stuff in them. And he would, you know, write back and forth with them about their personal lives. And he did this with young men and he did this with young women, little eighth graders, Mm -hmm. so kids. And the idea that this was all like extremely strategic so that he could, you know, get with them down the line is especially insane to me because like, what kind of a long game is it that results in you, like grooming is supposed to be about kind of priming a person who is not able to consent meaningfully or whatever to have a relationship with you. And it didn't even work. It's not like they were persuaded. He raped these women, allegedly. Like what kind of a long game is that? Yeah. I mean, I think in that sense, the grooming only is relevant to the story of the 19 year old who says that she had consensual sex with him and he was married at the time and he was her former middle school teacher. So she thinks about it in retrospect. It's like sex that she regrets, but it's only 
it would only be part of a pattern of assault if you could say that there was something where she didn't really consent because she had been groomed. Now, I guess when I saw this about the grooming, to me, this seemed like there are two things going on. And like, he can be, if these allegations are true of him having assaulted these women, he's a bad guy. I mean, you see, and even if they're not, he seems like a pretty darn annoying middle school teacher. These things seem entirely believable to me what does not i mean entirely if 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 proven true with the legal part with the annoying middle school teacher part i'm just gonna say i think he's like i would not have liked this middle school teacher this sounds annoying but what doesn't seem true and what seems dangerous and not to be all like there's a woody allen angle but there's totally a sort of unstated subtext of woody allen a man could be awful and not be a child molester and i think what we're left with here is a man who sounds very plausibly slash credibly awful, but this child molester angle and all the stuff about this girl's underpants when she was 12 seems like insinuation that does not belong and that is like aimed at making this a story beyond what, and I guess I don't even know why, because it's like, it's bad enough. Like yes. this is what we've been talking about all this time is that like privately you and I had about like, this is, this is not bad enough. <laughs> like we have this man who, if this is true, violently raped women that's enough that's, that's really bad that's plenty bad that's not me too iffy problematic aziz i'm sorry no 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 this is like this is just nobody's disputing that this is terrible behavior and i i guess i just wonder what this sort of child angle and then this slate article with all of these pictures of this now adult woman as a child just seems to be like the met and and I'm sorry, but like I looked at my timeline and everybody on it basically who was weighing in on this, men and women, people who I, I follow because I respect their views, you know, were just like this is shattering. This is the most horrible thing ever, you know. Like, can you believe this? This man did all these horrible things. And I think what happened. I'm sorry, but I think the framing of the story really did insinuate something other, something to do with child molestation that just doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any either evidence for or even real accusation of. And it's already like what there actually is an allegation of is so bad that it seems like, uh, I don't know. Like, I guess, I guess what I just don't understand is, is this supposed to be in any other context? Kat, have you ever seen this before that grooming referred to somebody being overly friendly with a minor only to a decade later try to have sex with them. Well, I mean, grooming is a word that's undergone an incredible level of concept creep and is now being used. I mean, we've talked about this on a previous episode, I think, you know, to refer to basically any attention that is paid to, I mean, it's, it always is a man paying attention to a woman. It does not seem to work the other way. Um, but any attention that a man pays to a woman with the goal of establishing a relationship with her is described as grooming. Like flirting, like flirting is right. described okay. as grooming. Yeah. And it's we've talked about all of this from you know in in other contexts, but there is this like weird kind of overarching idea that a woman never actually meaningfully desires to have a relationship or to have sex that like the only relationships a woman has are, are the ones that she's been somehow kind of tricked into or primed Ooh. for mm -hmm. in this nefarious mm -hmm. way. But I really want to talk about the 12 year old girl angle. Um, there's, there's a lot here that like, that I wanted to kind of touch on. I mean, one of these 
um, wow, I really, really wish I had not just said touch on. <laughs> I was wondering whether I should comment on that or not. Um, yeah, you know, not that was not a Freudian slip. I just it's a it's an intellectual turn of phrase. I'm also like I'm still kind of foggy headed. I got my second COVID vaccine um, a couple days ago and. I plead vaccine brain fog. Um, but like, okay, so I think that a couple things are happening here. One is that this is what I think you've previously identified as like the never liked him anyway effect where, you know, a guy is revealed to have been bad in a certain way in a certain situation. And hence everything he's ever done is now tainted and is now creepy and has to be somehow tied to that. Right. And it's going through Philip Roth as well. And it's like somehow Philip Roth having done things in fiction, it's like blurred with Philip Roth as a person which is in turn now blurred with bailey as a person right um and bailey's writing it's all all is one all is one no distinction between what's in writing what's in fiction specifically and what's um in life yeah it's an issue and people are uncomfortable with this like i think that that that's sort of what this stems from is intense discomfort with a situation that that makes it very clear that a person like that basically everybody is is kind of capable of doing evil. I mean that's when we talk about like is this a plausible or, or a credible allegation? I mean what makes it plausible is that every human being is capable of doing evil things. Like to me that's what makes it plausible. You know the the fact that like unless he was accused of doing it like on the moon, you know, right. it's like that's literally right. impossible. Well, I think the fact that he's been accused by three women of doing something makes it to to my mind in a again non-legal sense plausible or credible as versus what I when I say plausible or credible, uh, I can't speak or credible and I've only had one shot so it can't be that. <laughs> um yeah, I mean as versus the child molestation insinuation. It's not insinuated that he assaulted these women. It's alleged and that seems different. And it's not alleged by like random women who hated this book but never met him. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I'll I'll be the, you know, I'll stick my neck out and say that I I would have been more persuaded by the multiple accusers thing maybe like 10 years ago um, before a whole bunch of incidents occurred. And I can I can think of several off the top of my head where there was like a multiple allegation, was it pattern of abuse where, you know, it turned out that it was basically an organized effort um, amongst several people to take someone down by creating the impression that he was like a serial predator. And sometimes it was based on like one substantive allegation that they then sort of like sought support for. Like if you've ever had like come forward, you know, Um, and sometimes it was just like absolute fabricated bullshit as as with what happened to Alex Morse in uh, in Massachusetts, which we talked about at one point. So like at this point, you know, I, I just I'm not interested even in trying to litigate or like or or make any judgment myself on whether he did this or not. If he did, mm-hmm. what's alleged is horrible. Well, I just mean that to distinguish it from the thing that is pure insinuation. Mm-hmm. And that is frankly, very over the top sort of overwrought in your face with this Slate article yes. where I, I both feel bad for this woman for what, you know, she says has happened when she was an adult and feel like this whole, the choice of, I guess, Slate to um, package this story as a million pictures of this woman as a little 
as a child and about who needs to hear about this 12 year old's underpants and sorry like I think that that's inappropriate and like yeah yeah and he didn't know about her underpants when you know like it, it putting an image in one's mind of this man and a 12 year old girl's underpants and putting that together as if that has something to do with each other and I think that there's something about that that's intensely creepy and unsettling and cruel because it's not what he's even accused of. And then, mm. and then ultimately that backfires and makes the allegations seem less credible. Yes. Okay. So yeah, this is what I was going to yeah. say. You know, the, I think that the, partly this stems from, you know, from this discomfort with the fact that these two behaviors, like the sort of boundary challenged teaching um, that nevertheless made him very popular amongst the kids. A lot of the kids really responded to it, obviously. And the allegations of rape with adults, that these two things can be unrelated. He could have been a teacher who connected with his students and made them feel valued and made them feel respected. And he also is at the same time, you know, a gross sexual aggressor slash violent rapist with adult women, some of whom, but not all of whom he had made. Right, not all of whom. Mm -hmm. We want these things to be connected. You know, it's comforting to imagine that that bad men advertise themselves. But as you were saying, it does feel like the framing of this there are now like countless people out there. Like I, you know, I saw it all over um, my timeline, you know, in people talking about this who are framing this as he raped a 12 year old. It's like, this has become the narrative. Yes. And that's not helpful because that's not even what he's accused of. And then, yeah, I mean, I think the blurring is both like, yes, it's, it's misleading because I mean, like, as we've discussed also on Twitter, like teachers who turn out to be, child abusers are unfortunately out there. Does it line up in any particular way with the teachers who try to be friends with the students? Anecdotally, I'd say no. I think these are just two different things that both exist um, among teachers. And to say that the teachers who want to be the cool teacher, it's a long game of child or or a short game if it's happening while they're actually minors. Um, I don't think these things have anything to do with each other. But then in terms of the blurring, there's also the whole Philip Roth thing and that there have been a lot of attempts to connect literally like the content of Philip Roth's fiction with the actions of his biographer. And to me, that seems just like really a bad road to go down Mm -hmm. because, you know, these things do not relate to each other. And the idea that it's all sort of toxic masculinity, objectification, whatever, like, I'm sorry, I... I have read Philip Roth novels. They are not, first of all, like to be clear, these are not like novels about men preying on women. It's that's not what's meant. You know, that's not the type of novel. I'm not going to say that in his oeuvre, which I have not read in full, like I am not like I haven't gone as a lawyer, which I am not (laughs) and combed through his novels. But what I'm saying is that I have identified with aspects of Philip Roth protagonists you know, thought processes. I mean, this shouldn't be like a guilty admission. (laughs) (laughs) Just No, I mean, it just doesn't, these things just don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And I feel like this is this weird thing where it's not even art versus artist, but it's like, it's somehow all supposed to be connected. And I guess the more sophisticated writing on this topic has been from women who, you know, are conversant in the, you know, literary aspect of things. And then it's this sort of like, the sophisticated take now is like including Philip Roth's own objectification in fiction of women with 
these allegations. And it just, to me, this seems like very screwed up in terms of the truth versus fiction. And then like, it seems like a a new way of restraining what fiction can be because suddenly it's like, it's all got these real world applications that it doesn't, but like, oh, I don't know. I'm not good at articulating this right now, but I feel like that's, that's a part of this that's frustrating to me is well, this incredibly tangled web of guilt by association where it's as though we're trying to hold philip roth accountable retroactively decide that he's worthless and, and you know cancel him basically mm-hmm. because his biographer did something bad before he was even his biographer and you know the uh, allegations that took place before they met he had a work relationship with yeah and that emerged after philip roth was dead what does philip roth have to do with any of this oh and we should probably mention that in the wake of these allegations um blake bailey was dropped by his publisher dropped by his agent and this is the crucial and to me just like mind-blowing thing uh they pulped his book So the biography of Philip Roth, if you were looking forward to reading that, sorry. Yeah. So that's the publishing angle is, is its own sort of complicated and depressing one. But I do want to just, before we like lose it, before we not lose it, like completely lose it, but before we lose the thread, all sort of female, (laughs) female sexuality angle, I think is really important. And this whole idea of grooming. And I want to kind of like come back to that via this part of the personal essay slate piece um, about babies. Okay. Cause I really, I don't want to have lost that. Yeah. Thread. No, please talk about the babies. Okay. So this is from the, the personal essay in slate. Okay. So this is the woman who um, alleges that Bailey assaulted her when she was 22, but groomed her when she was 12 and had whichever underpants. Okay. So this is a quote from this story. Okay. I work at a high school now where I realized two things that brought my experience with him, that's Bailey, into greater focus. One, even our seniors look like infants to me. Two, the bond between teacher and student is sacred. Even students who are no longer technically students are still, quote, my babies, no matter how old they get, end quote. Okay, this, I think we are both a little bit... Um, that's not healthy. Struck by. I'm just going to say it. That's not and healthy. I, I, I screenshotted this on, and put on Twitter and a lot of people were like, what on earth? And I think there's a lot going on here and I want to kind of unpack it. So um, one of the things is this kind of like assertion of female sexuality as almost like pure to the point of non-existence such that a woman, you know, could not see an 18 year old and say that he's handsome. Now I'm going to say, I think this is probably like a pretty big general difference between male and female sexuality in that I I might agree that an 18 year old would just look, I wouldn't say like an infant, but yeah, fine. I think there is something, but it's like this idea of, of um, like this sort of purity level, like that just seems unnecessary. I don't think you have to, to not be molesting high school students you don't have to think they look like infants when they are 18 years old. That is not, that is not a thing. That doesn't make any sense. If you want to respect students, you should treat them as people the age they are, you know, not like infants. That's really weird. Um, Then the second part about the baby, the my babies seems very strange because if nothing else, 
once somebody is not your student and they're an adult, you could be friends with them. You know what I mean? Like, why would that be weird? You know, like, would they be your baby if you're just friends with them? And then let's say you meet years later, lots of people know, like whenever, so when this conversation was going on Twitter, like lots of people were mentioning cases of, you know, people who did ultimately get together with people who'd been their teacher or their student, whatever years before, because it's, it's not actually an incest taboo. It's not actually statutory rape. It has nothing to do with this. It's not people, literally your baby. Yeah, people, <laughs> and then this could be people who have an age difference of like five years from each other who meet as adults, you know, a second time they meet as adults. Like, what is this taboo? What is this newly invented taboo here? And I mean, talk about infantilizing <laughs> that my baby's thing is so weird. And then I think that that's, that's where I just started to really like lose the thread on this and just not really understand this because it seemed to be that, that Bailey's crime is viewing women who were once in middle school, but are now adults as adults. And to me, that seems no, like you are allowed to do that. That is, that is the normal. That is not the thing that he did. That is, that should be coming under fire. There are enough things he's alleged of doing that are actually bad. This doesn't make any sense. Okay, so not just that, but that up until very recently, coming to see a person who you once knew as a child, you know, once they've reached adulthood, to see them as an adult, you know, and to like kind of appreciate and respect their full humanity as an adult used to be what you were supposed to do. I mean, and we have no trouble, I think, even now recognizing in other contexts, that to insist on seeing somebody as a permanent child or baby, even, you know, once they've reached adulthood and have like a job and a mortgage and maybe children of their own is like a deeply unhealthy thing. And I mean, how many times, you know, do you hear about somebody who's in therapy and is like, I have been living independently on my own for 10 years, like I'm about to turn 30 and my parents still treat me like I'm 14, you know, like we, re we recognize yes. that as unhealthy. So there's that. You're supposed to respect and acknowledge people who were once children, which is everyone. Yes. As adults. Everyone, everyone was an infant. <laughs> Virtually everyone was a middle school student, unless you somehow managed to avoid that part of life which what, more power to you but <laughs> this reminds um, me of uh, of uh part in rolled doll's book matilda where the trunchbull who is the villain says i was never a child you know this is her, <laughs> her claim to fit. she hates children she's like i was never one so there's that i mean this is supposed to be the thing you know mm -hmm. that you recognize people you know that they are adults once they've become adults but also it was also supposed to work the other way. The healthy thing was for it to work the other way, that once you reached adulthood, one of the interesting and necessary things about having become an adult is that you relate to other adults, not as this like nebulous, unknowable, grown-up entity, but as people. Like mm -hmm. you grow up and you realize oh, every adult that I knew that I saw as just like a grown-up and therefore an alien was a person. And you find out that your parents are people and you find out that your teachers are people. And 
to cling to this childish perspective on the world in which you insist on only ever understanding other people from the perspective of a child and only ever being understood yourself as a child. You know, if somebody knew you as a child, they can only ever see you that way. And like, it's an affront if they, you know, if they update their understanding of you, that's like deeply fucked up. I'm sorry. It is. And I, I think the the problem here is a lot is resting on his having said that he liked her when he saw her, you know, and I think that that is the sort of thing that a man who as the portrait I'm getting of Bailey from this is that this is somebody who at least likes to have a pose of kind of transgressing the bourgeois, you know, mm-hmm. and it seems like the kind of thing that that would kind of transgress you know what I mean? In that way, it, like he knows he knew her as her middle school teacher, but it seems still that seems different to me than preying on middle school students. Yeah. But I mean, I do want to just like return to this whole sort of like the female sexuality aspect of things, because it what this is saying is that any woman who was once a middle school girl, which is again, like all women is forever in some kind of child mode where, you know, every time any, if she meets a man, if she did know him when she was younger, that, you know, like, was she groomed to somehow like falsely consent? Now, like, it's, it's this weird thing that doesn't really, but like, I, I feel like the two, the items one and two, like the sort of performative, I couldn't find an 18 year old attractive you know, seems a little like, it's like this weird, like, it's like make drawing a line that I don't think exists in the actual world of people between sort of male sexuality as this predatory, you know, base thing, and female sexuality as at most consent, you know what I mean? Yeah, Yeah. and I think I'm not saying that anybody should be who's teaching high school should be like, oh, well, the student's 18. So whatever. No, I don't think it's like that. But I mean, to say that you don't actually have to, like, if Bailey did not see an 18 year old as looking like, you know, a two month old, I think that's fine. That's not the problem here. That's there's an there is a problem. That was not the problem. And this need to add that she thought that the seniors look like Infants to me just seems like something to saying something about female sexuality as being somehow like outside the normal human experience, which I think is just, and not even about like the sex part, but like seniors in high school do not look like infants. You know, that doesn't mean leching at them. It just means they don't. It doesn't make any sense. And then I think what also is upsetting here is like, so just to sort of yes and what you were saying about what it means to reach adulthood is a lot of people experience adulthood and not being a minor anymore as very freeing, you know, and because it does mean that the entire world of adults, you know, not somebody who's your, you know, boss or employee or teacher or student at that time, you know, fine, but that virtually the entire world of adults is open to you, you know, romantically. And that's a good thing for a lot of people. And, you know, certainly if like, if you're gay, you can come out potentially, you know, all sorts of things. But if you're straight also, you know, like this is just this idea that it would just be like an unequivocally bad and dangerous and scary and unwanted thing to be an adult and suddenly of legal age, that this would just only be experienced as like being prey seems weird and not true to how people live. Um, 
Yeah. And that, that was some of what was getting to me about this. I mean, there is this weird kind of nebulous sense out there that um, if, if women had their way, like they would never experience sexual attraction or sexual attention at all. That like, you know, it would just, it would just simply not be a part of their Mm -hmm. lives. And this would be like the ideal way to exist as a completely sexless, like, like not even, not even androgynous, but just like neutered, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really add up, but it seems to be, this is where, I mean, like, so yeah, my now not paywalled hedgehog review piece, what I talked about was this, like this whole sort of this idea that women, most women, you know, actually do want men seems to be like very absent from the kind of post me Too discourse. And it's like, as if to bring that up is to somehow make light of, or is like to, to um, hijack the conversation away from the real issue of, you know, men being predatory. And I think, no, these things like, predation happens so does female desire all these things happen and you know the idea that like i I guess it just like it keeps coming back to bailey can turn out it may well turn out that he's the worst but it's not for the reasons that are insinuated here at least given this evidence now it could be that next week there's credible evidence that he was a child molester. And then we address that then, but that's not where we're at now. And could be that next week there's credible evidence that anybody's a child molester. So you can't, you know what I mean? Like this doesn't like, you can't just assume the worst of everybody based on a lack of even allegations. Right. Well, I mean, this is the thing that, that I think is frustrating about the choice to conflate his teaching approach with something predatory just because, you know, down the road, he did a predatory thing, allegedly. You know, it's it's this guilt by association that ends up tarring a lot of people who have nothing in common with Bailey, except that they maybe share a similar approach to teaching, um, which, you know, is a, a somewhat popular approach. Like, I mean, uh, it seems one of the things that that makes this such a resonant story is that a lot of us knew teachers like this, whether we enjoyed them as teachers or not. But, you know, a lot of people adopt this teaching style and they do it because for some kids, it's really, you know, they see a lot of value in it and they and they see it as having been valuable to their lives down the road after they're adults. Like Bailey won, he won uh, some kind of award for being an excellent teacher because he was nominated by students who fell mm-hmm. after the fact that he had changed their lives for the better. And all of the teachers who who have nothing else in common with him except that they share this approach to teaching are now being tarred as guilty by association for bad acts that he allegedly committed that have nothing to do with teaching. Right, I mean, I would so I would say that that teaching style there's a case against it that has nothing to do with child molestation. I have had teachers like this who I don't think best as I could tell were adopting this teaching style out of the goodness of their hearts because they thought this was what reached students the best. And the reason I say this is because they would like ignore the curriculum and talk about their own lives and talk about whatever popped into their heads. And it seemed pretty much like they had, you know, the expression, a captive audience, right? This was what they felt like chatting about, you know, whenever that class met and that's what they did. And they, maybe they wanted to be seen as cool. Maybe they wanted to just chat about whatever they wanted to chat about and not, you know, read 1984 with a bunch of children. So I'm not saying that that teaching style should be like 
unassailable or whatever. I'm saying that this has nothing to do with child molestation. And I think these things need to be separated out, you know? So yes, this is guilt by association of a bunch of excellent teachers. It's also guilt by association of a bunch of crummy teachers who again are not like crummy teaching is not not abuse. (laughs) It's just a thing that anybody who's been in school has probably encountered and yeah, I, I guess, so like, I would say that my bias, when I see something about like these journals, like that makes me think, okay, I would not have liked a teacher like this. I find, I also did not ever like idolize teachers in this way. So I, this whole dynamic is a little bit foreign to me, but this just seems like, like if anything, my bias should be towards like, well, you know, <laughs> let him hang because I don't like that <laughs> teaching style, but this just seems like a different thing. And it just, uh, it, like this doesn't seem to like the implications of this are not great. And I think it just seems like it's bad in all the sort of classic me too ways and is not going to be resolved in any sort of satisfactory way. So what you just said made me think of the one other aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet that I really want to talk about. Well, we probably have time for one other aspect. So let's go for okay. it. Okay. I want to return to the the fact that the Me Too movement has made it possible for this to be the scenario, that Bailey is accused of violent crimes, uh, accused of committing felonies, and you know, particularly this this allegation that he raped a woman he did not know at you know a house where they were both guests. That is unbelievably depraved and like remarkably like straightforwardly criminal in a way that is unusual. Look at sort of like the landscape of Me Too stories. Many men Mm -hmm. have been maybe even rightfully ruined for less, for much, much less. And yet, despite the fact that this is a straightforwardly criminal allegation, criminal act, it was not reported to the police. It was reported to his publisher several years after the fact. And I think that there is something worth debating in this notion that reporting a man to his employer is this like kind of easy, casual diet alternative to the criminal justice system. Because if you go to the police, well, you know, you have to file a report. You have to use your name. You have to submit to invasive questions. You have to cooperate with an investigation and it's going to take a really long time. And there's all of this like pesky due process stuff that where they're required to be fair to the accused, to give him a chance to like respond to the allegations. And so if you go to his employer, it seems like there's this sort of widespread understanding that you get to skip all of that and you get all of the satisfaction and the immediate satisfaction of seeing a person who's wronged you suffer, you know, suffer serious consequences, suffer the loss of his reputation and in some cases his livelihood without any of the hassle of, you know, going through the normal channels that were established to deal with stuff like this. And I mean, this was a huge part of the, once the story broke, there was all of this backlash coming out of, um, you know, the online feminist and progressive discourse about how like when his publisher first received this anonymous allegation that he'd raped somebody they didn't just immediately cut ties with him as though as though that was what you were supposed to do and 
you know, I want to say that, like, I understand the urge to to try to find this alternate system, I guess, because, you know, it's true the criminal justice system is not set up to be maximally or immediately satisfying to victims of crimes. Like, it's not very easy to accuse somebody of a crime and, and have them punished. And the system is constructed that way on purpose. And if it was constructed to be super satisfying to victims, it would look very different from how it does. And we would probably put a lot more innocent people in prison. Um, but I just, you know, it it disturbs me to see so many people who are ostensibly on the left supporting the idea that you can do an end run around due process because due process is a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like you, I yeah, I sympathize with feeling like whether it's a correct or incorrect guess that going to the cops wouldn't do anything or would just be worse. And that and looking for some other channel. I, I I don't think that that's like irrational behavior or like, or I don't think it's calculated necessarily. You know, I think it's, it can just be like trying to figure out what to do. And it seems like what else could you do? This is the only thing that could possibly have an impact. I, I get that. But yeah, I think on the whole, the problem with the empl- go to an employer is exactly this, that there's no, um, due process there's no does this make any there's no looking at evidence it's just kind of like anybody it it shouldn't be that anybody can say anything to somebody's employer and they're fired because it's just a bad system for everybody there's nobody who it's not like that's only a bad system if you're a you know straight white man who wrote a biography of philip roth like (laughs) well-received whatever you know like this is actually like a really bad system in general and um it seems like it might make more sense to reform the actual criminal justice system and improve it rather than have a system of like, let's just forget about <laughs> guilt and innocence and presumptions of innocence and so forth. And any man who's said to be even a little bit creepy should just be like, you know, destroyed, (laughs) like it doesn't really work. And then I think that, yeah, this, this always to me, like part of the problem with the whole me too approach like this is that it winds up making the men who've done nothing particular seem terrible, but also makes the men who've done terrible things fall sort of under this like imagined umbrella of like men who did something vaguely bad. And it becomes hard to remember that like some of these men have done really terrible things but because there's just this vague category of problematicness and so forth um, that they fall into, they can then claim that they were just like, you know, canceled for no good reason. Mm-hmm. And like Roman Polanski being a sort of obvious example of somebody who's like, you know, they, the witch yeah. hunt out to get me. And it's he like, gets okay. lumped in with a lot of, with a lot of men who haven't done, you know, much of anything. I mean, certainly nothing even allegedly criminal, um, but like, right. yeah, it's like Roman Polanski and Aziz Ansari and Louis C.K. What if these things is not like the other? Yeah. And then, but then I think what ends up happening is the Roman Polanskis of the world get to be like, look at this, you know, I, I was merely just, you know, living my life. And, and then the <laughs> cancel culture witch hunt came to get me. And, and then it becomes more plausible that that was the case to people when there's so many things that are that, but then the thing is that wasn't that. And um, he was, I believe, convicted of um, raping a 13-year-old girl, which is, you know, a 
that's that's bad. You know, that's yeah. not I mean, vague in fa- problematicness. Right. In fact, and that's a good example of like, you know, that case was given to the police. And, yes. you know, I actually I did look up the statistics on this because I was curious. There is this pervasive narrative that like there's no point in going to the police because they won't believe you. And they'll like they'll tell you that you were probably asking for it. And, you know, and they won't even bother to investigate. Um, I looked up the clearance rates for different crimes because I was curious about like so like the clearance rate, if uh, if anybody is uninitiated or Phoebe, if you yourself are uninitiated, um, it basically means that. Either somebody was arrested and, you know, possibly charged and convicted, but arrested, um, mm-hmm. you know, the case was closed for that reason. Or there's this other thing where it's oh, exceptional means where the case was closed because they had somebody that they could have arrested and wanted to, but for reasons beyond law enforcement's control, um, they were unable to do the arrest. So... I looked up the stats for clearance, which, you know, they they don't tell us, obviously, like what percentage of given uh, criminals are like going to see jail time or are convicted or or even are prosecuted. But um, it does tell you like roughly how seriously the police try to address these crimes. Right. So if rape were not taken seriously by the police, you would see that they had an exceptionally low clearance rate. Um, and what it turned out was that rape has a clearance rate of about 33%, um, which is not great, but it is actually is better than robbery, which has a clearance rate of 30%. And it's better than, it's a lot better than like arson, larceny, property crimes, burglaries, um, all of which are like Mm -hmm. low twenties, high teens. And the murder clearance rate um, or the manslaughter clearance rate is only 60%. So like by comparison, you know, it's, it's what's clear from these statistics is just that, you know, it's not that the police are not trying, um, you know, to solve, to solve rapes that are reported to them. Right. I mean, I think, I think this is valuable to know. I think it doesn't necessarily change that like victims have perceptions and are not necessary. Like, I, I don't think it changes necessarily that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a calculated move. Oh, I don't think it's calculated. What I'm willing to say is that, especially in the case of, of a crime like the one we're discussing, where you're violently raped by a stranger at somebody else's house, um, what I'm willing to say is that it's irresponsible not to report that to the police. This is somebody who apparently is is willing to do something incredibly vicious, you know, incredibly depraved, and... I think that there is something of an obligation there to to try to make sure that that person can't do it to somebody else. I guess I, I may have to disagree there. I think in an ideal world, somebody would report that to the police. But I think if you're really traumatized after something like that, I think that would be a case where trauma isn't like the sort of Tumblr use of trauma. Like I could see that you would maybe like not be in your right mind. I understand not point. wanting to. I'm not suggesting that it would be fun. Um, I just think that you you have to do it anyway. Or, you know, you should do it anyway. Well, Bailey, what's going to happen there? Well, Philip I Roth mean, biographies he... go on eBay or something. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, will will uh, eBay pull a Seuss with the Philip Roth yeah. biography and um, and you know refuse to list it because it's what did, what did they call it? Like not obscene material. 
illicit material, something. Mm. I mean, they 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 called this these Dr. Seuss books that they pulled off of the off of the listing something that was like it was like it was designed to make them that much more interesting and naughty, you know? Right. Well, I guess that now maybe this is the best publicity this 900 page uh, biography of Philip Roth could get, except for the small matter of it not being available. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to come of all this, but um, I think I'm I'm tapped out of insights on it. Yeah, I think that we've uh, we've we've pretty much exhausted this. The, my only question now is, I haven't read Philip Roth, and since obviously I'm not going to be reading a biography of him anymore, if I wanted to just like if I had to read one Philip Roth book, what would you recommend? I would say Portnoy's Complaint, definitely. It's not supposed to be like his great novel necessarily in the sense of like, that would probably be American pastoral. But um, it's really, it's just very funny. It's very funny. And it kind of gets at a lot of why, like what his place has been in the culture. It's a fun read. And it involves somebody having sex with a liver. Among other things. Well, I'm sold. (laughs) Go for it. All right. Well, this has been Feminine Chaos. It sure has. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider joining us on Patreon, patreon.com slash feminine chaos, where you can subscribe to get exclusive content, as well as early access to all of our public episodes before we release them publicly, and um, a backlog of all of our previous episodes that we've released for subscribers. Yes, please give it a shot. Okay. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.